0: You are listening to Absent Minded, brought to you by HabsEyesOnThePrize.com. dot Hello and welcome to Hapsent Minded, my name is Jared Book. Joining me this episode on the podcast is TSN hockey analyst, former NHL player, former Montreal Canadian, Mike Johnson, and he is someone who is very highly regarded in terms of uh, a broadcaster, uh, for my thinking and and a lot of people's thinking, he is one of the the best analysts in uh, hockey broadcasting today. And I was very, very happy to have him uh, on the podcast. And I want to thank him for, for joining me. And uh, we, we go into a lot of things uh, in, in this episode. We talk about uh, his approach to broadcasting. Uh, we talk about his uh, time with the Canadians. And we also obviously talk about this, uh, this current version of the Canadians. Uh, get him to put his analyst hat on. And uh, we hope you, uh, we hope you enjoy this podcast. Mike, thank you for for joining us on on Habsent Minded. How are you doing? How hopefully all of uh, all of your uh, your family and, and you are, are safe and, and healthy.
1: Yeah, well, we're all good. We're all just hunkered in and doing our uh, doing our best to get used to the new normal.
0: And, and we'll we'll start off with the the broadcasting aspect uh, of things. The broadcast that you do for TSN with the Canadians is is a regional broadcast. Do you kind is it a challenge? You know, doing it. Kind, you know part-time not every game and then dealing with a a, a fan base that you know will, will likely have watched every game does it put does it affect your preparation when you do it uh, a regional broadcast like that
1: um no, i don't think it affects my preparation whether i do every game or or you know every other game or whatever it ends up i end up doing for montreal um, you know in fact, in many ways I, I enjoy the fact that I can spread it around and you get out of different voices. you know all the TSN broadcasters are very talented people We're all a little bit different, which yeah. keeps it fresh for hopefully the audience but also keeps it fresh for me because you know I come in after miss having not called two or three games well, I have fresh thoughts and ideas on not only really what's happening in my game right in front of me but also what's going on in the last week and to t- can draw on that without feeling that you're you're being redundant or you're yeah, you know, you're, you're belaboring a point. So uh, I have no problem, you know, with the amount of games that we kind of break up. Uh, hopefully the, the viewers enjoy it as well. So uh, I, that doesn't really bother me one bit. As far as preparation, knowing that the, the fan base in Montreal is passionate and will have been watching every game, uh, I, I don't prepare any harder for a big game versus a smaller game, a playoff game for a preseason game. You know, you, you have the standard that you set and the preparation that you like to do as a as a broadcaster and you follow through that whether it's you know a World Championship game of Italy versus France, or if it's you know a Stanley Cup playoff game, uh, you prepare the same way because you know you're doing the best job you can every single night. So uh, I love the fact that the Montreal fans are passionate. I love the fact that I'll do a game and people will reach out to me on Twitter saying, "You got that wrong," "You got that right," "I agree with you there," "I disagree with you there," you're, you're, "You don't know what you're talking about here." Fantastic. It means they're care. It means they're invested, and and that's what you want as a broadcaster. You want people to be watching and. And be interested in the game that's going on.
0: And you know, having played uh, as long as you did in the NHL, and and in terms of that, does it does it help you when you when you break down a play? I mean, I've heard you talk about you know what, you what, how you uh, you know read plays and and describe it you know and and focus more on on the wide and what happens. You know, as a as a former player, how how important was that to when, when transitioning into broadcasting?
1: Uh, I'm, I'm assuming it's important. I mean, I don't really know because I, uh, you know, it's the only path I took, so I don't know what I would be like if I had played not in the NHL or fewer games in the NHL. Uh, perhaps my tenure in the NHL, if, if anything, maybe lends credibility to what I might be saying, because people assume, you know, I played long enough. I, you know, I, I achieved enough, uh, moderate success when I played that I should presumably know something about what I'm talking about. Um, but, you know, I, I see the game the way I see the game. And we generally view the game through the prism of our own experiences. Whatever you, whether you're, you never played or played a little bit or whatever kind of thing you like, you kind of see it through that lens. And, and so I see it in a, maybe a bit more of an analytical lens, but I probably always have, Is that's what I'm saying. I don't know if that's, a, that's because I played in the NHL. I think that's just how I always watch sports. Uh, even when I was in high school and in college and a far ways away from the NHL, it's, you know, I enjoyed kind of understanding what was going on and being able to read and, and appreciate the steps behind the obvious step. And so uh, maybe my time in the NHL helped me crystallize some of those thoughts or or, or, or the, the verbiage to, to explain it. But um, that's just kind of how I've always been when I watch sports. And I, I don't know if that's necessarily because I played whatever, 10 years in the NHL
0: you mentioned you know looking at analytically obviously analytics weren't weren't a big part of the game when when you played at least you know publicly if if you played now is that something that you would focus on
1: I would be curious yeah <laughs> i it, publicly privately I'd never heard of any of the kind of terminology <laughs> or any of the stuff that we talk about now that's you know seeping into maybe some of the public discourse but certainly privately behind the scenes teams are very much invested in trying to get a better understanding of who's doing what and what leads to success and how can we make sure that our team does that more often. Um, I know for a fact that today, just like when I played, there are, there's going to be, I don't know, 60% of the team that could care less. Like I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know it. I don't care about it. Just tell me what I need to do a little bit in the terms I want to use and I'll go out and play well. Um, There's probably, there'd probably be 10 or 15% of the guys now that would be curious and they want to understand. They don't really want to dive deep into it, but they maybe want to understand the language or maybe understand, especially if their teams are using it to, to break down their own evaluation. So they, you know, if their team prioritizes this, you'd like to know that because your team is evaluating you. And if that leads to success, you'd like to know that uh, on a surface level. And there's probably 10 to 15. So maybe two or three or four guys on each team that is, is completely curious by it and wants to dig into it and maybe wants to understand on a league-wide basis or on an individual basis, what do I do when I do well? What what kind of things beyond goals and assists do I do when I do well, when I play well, and what do I not? I think I would have been in that last 10 or 15%. I would have wanted to know. I would have wanted to know um, different measures of what a successful game feels like beyond goals and assists because – I know that I grinded hard when I played about points and and it wore on me mentally if I hadn't scored in five games or ten games and if I wasn't, you know, on pace for 45 or 50 points or whatever it was, it wore on me. So it would have been nice to maybe say, don't stress so much about the fact that you haven't scored. Look at you've generated more shots. You've had more successful passes to slot. You've got more zone. Whatever you're talking about, I definitely would have been a guy that would have been more curious about it. In fact, I'm waiting for these websites to go further back into history because I think the furthest back one I found was my last year in the NHL where I played for St. Louis and I'll be the first to admit I wasn't very good that year and sadly my numbers reflect that I wasn't very good that year and so I wish they'd go back another four five six seven years because I would have thought that some of these numbers would have been kind to me I think I would have been a You know, there would have been things I would have done well that I would have scored up, showed up beyond just goals and assists. But I don't know. I'd like to believe that. But if someone wants to do that as an assignment, be sure to run through my games. But um, I would have definitely been curious in it if I was playing.
0: And and I guess it, from from a player's perspective, it must. It's not you know the end all be all, but you want to know that you're doing things that help your team win. You know, beyond goals and assists, right? That that's the, I guess, the enticing factor um, from your perspective. Yeah,
1: for sure. I mean, you know, there's, there's the two parts, right? What, what do we do with the team that, that makes us successful? And what do I do as an individual that helps my team be successful? And and, and I think to understand that and then to help work towards doing that more often or limiting what the other team does well to hurt us and doing that more often, and yeah, that's, that's the end goal. Win more games by helping your team be better and helping yourself be better. And that's not being selfish. That's just that's what the job is. You try to be the best you can. So you can help your team be the best they can and win as many games as you can together. And to me, some, some, and I get it for some people, too much information is not good. They, they don't want, it slows them down. It, it's too much to, to deal with the process to, to compute or to think about. And other people, they thrive on more information. And I am a person that likes more information. Um, I, you know, information, knowledge is power. And the more information, the more knowledge you can acquire the better off in just about any job you're
0: going to be. And, you know, you, you like to bring it in the, your broadcast as well. And, and how important is that to just use that as a tool and, and make it accessible? I, I think that might be the even more important part than just rattling off, um, you know, numbers and, and things like that. But, uh, you know, putting putting those those numbers and those the things that, that come out of these, these these analytics, but making it accessible to, to the person who's watching and listening to you.
1: Yeah, accessible for sure. I mean, much of what I get is on public domain, so I guess mm. accessible to most. Uh, there's yeah. a few private services that I use, but I, I think it's it's just more making it relatable or understandable mm. or common. Just you know, where you're not you know throwing a spreadsheet you know on the board and expecting everyone to understand it, but just yeah. you know using numbers to illustrate with the support of video, with the support of the game, helping people understand what's going on? Why is happening? Why is that guy not playing? Why is that guy playing more? How come that guy's in the power play when it seems like this guy? Should be able... And maybe you introduce some ideas and some language and some terminology that people can say, okay, well, I didn't think of it that way. That maybe makes a little bit sense. Um, and so, yeah, I try to do it sporadically. I don't think you're going to do it too much. And it's a challenge in hockey because there's not a lot of breaks. <laughs> the breaks you do have are quite tight. So you have, you know, 30 seconds, you got to get in and out and you don't want to, you know, bleed into the the play when uh, something's going on in the ice, and meanwhile you got a board about numbers up in the air. That's not going to make <laughs> anyone happy. The goal is score with that stuff. So there are there are there are places and times for everything. But I do try to introduce it because I want to try to help people understand it. It's not about the numbers test versus the eye test. It's about them all working together. They're all part of a comprehensive understanding package of what's happening. And I'm trying to make that package come across. Uh, that is entertaining, uh, that is fun, and that is in some ways um, illuminating. Or you know, people can appreciate and have something explained to them or understand it a little bit better than if I didn't. So uh, I, I definitely want to bring it in so that it be, you know, be, so people understand, enjoy the game better, and also maybe just also get a little bit more used to seeing some of those things because you know, and if you are a passionate fan, as I know much all fans are. You know, the teams talk like this. It's not just me. <laughs> the teams talk like this. The general managers talk like this. The coaches talk <laughs> like this. And when they evaluate their players, they're not just using their eyeballs. They're using everything. Mm-hmm. So if you want to understand why Philip Deneau plays so many minutes and why he's so good, well, let's show you why he's so good. And it's not just because I watched the game and he hasn't scored in 10. Um, he shouldn't be playing 20 minutes. This is what Claude Julien seeing. That The numbers mm-hmm. he's using will show you the same thing to understand why.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll use that to to kind of go, go into um, you know Philip Deneau and 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 that line with, with Thomas Tatar and Brendan Gallagher has been you know by by the numbers one of the best lines um, yeah. in hockey and, in the league in yep. the league and and uh, there's still a, a a segment of of fans or in Montreal and outside of Montreal who who look at that and be like oh that can't be your top line and if you're going to make the playoffs um, you. Know, at this point, I mean, what else can they do to kind of get that respect because they're doing everything right?' they're even getting points. um I think Gallagher's a little bit ahead of the other two guys in terms of their their you know how people see them but but I mean right. at, at this point, I mean, you know they're they are one of the best lines in hockey and how is there anything that they can do or why is that perception? you know is it just a matter of you know looking at points and and that's what most people are looking at when you look at top lines?
1: Yep. I mean, really, I mean, to put it simply, yeah, especially for Phil Dineau, yeah. Um, because you're like, well, you can't be a top-line player when you score 15 goals. You can't be a first-line center, right? Because yeah. when you talk to people, they like to say, well, he's not a first-line centerman. You ask them, how many first-line centermen are there in the league? They say there's 10. Well, by definition, <laughs> there's 31. So I can't, you know, the standard that people hold guys to is probably a little bit too high, but definitely it's a, it's based on scoring because, yeah. All of their underlying numbers are just spectacularly good. They outshoot, they chance, they outscore. They play against the other team's toughest oppositions. They don't get great zone starts. Uh, a lot of stuff in their own end, and and they tilt the ice every time in Montreal's favor. Now, what you would love is if they scored more often. Yeah, and if Phil Deneau found a way to put the puck in the back of the net, and and there's something to be said for that. Like you can do all the right things at some point the puck does have to go in the net but as a line when you are outscoring and out and out the other team's best line night in and night out all the entire year multiple years in a row there's not much more you can do than that and it's hard to teach and this is you know something that i talk to players about all the time is that it's hard to teach players how to score i mean you especially once you're in the NHL, like I think you can use skills coaches and you can use stick, you know, and there are things you can do now that maybe even more. So when I played and you can improve your goal scoring skill, but I think goal scoring in many ways is um, a mentality and it's a unique skill set that is hard to, it's not just about shooting hard or, or, you know, getting a chance because you know, that line does all those things. So that, that sometimes is a limiting factor. Like some guys just are, are better at it than others. And maybe, you know, Phil Dano specifically is not as, as good at goal scoring as as other parts of the game, but he's that line has been great. And the other part of about it is that they don't pile up points in the power play Mm -hmm. because a lot of what you see, when you think of the top players in the league, top offensive guys, they'll get 80 points or 70 points, but 35 of them are on the power play. And so 75 or 80 looks really good, but five on five, which is how we evaluate how that line plays and not so much on the power play. um, You know, the disparity between the elite point getters and, Philip Dino at center is not as great as it would be when you look at all situations. So um, I think it's mostly just based on points. uh, And until you get better on the power play or maybe learn to score a little bit better than they do, that will still be there.
0: Yeah. Especially Dino. I think the other two get get at least time on the power play. Yeah. But,
1: um, and get you know, he was on, he he gets his 25 goals and his 55 points. He's going to have a career year this year and Gallagher gets his 30 every year and he, he gets his power play time. But Dino, with Suzuki around, with Domi there, last. he's not going to play on the first power play unit. He might not even play in the second power play unit. Yeah. So for him, the points, and I'm like, don't I know it? Because there's a big difference between you have a great regular season, you pick up 43 regular, even strength points.
0: Yeah.
1: Now, if you couple that with 22 in the power play, all of a sudden 65, 67, <laughs> that's, that's really solid. Yeah. If you get six power play points, well, you got 48. And that's like, nah, I mean, it's okay, but it's not that good. I mean, it really is a big difference in perception uh can be your power play production
0: and and I'll I'll use that as a as a jumping off point again I mean when you look at the canadians and, and whether you look at you know Gallagher Tar the, the power play just hasn't been very good and it was better this year than it was the year before it's still 22nd in the league when you look mm-hmm. at the individual talent it, it you know there's not that one game breaker but but there's there's enough talent there to think that they should be scoring a little bit more than than they are is there anything that you see uh, on the power play that that maybe makes it that it's it, it's not as effective as it as it can be?
1: Uh, sure. Uh, there's probably a couple different things for me. One, the primary one is um, zone entries. And I mean I think in many ways, from a guy who played in the power play to a guy who killed penalties, oftentimes the hardest part of the power play, is getting in the zone and setting up properly and, and getting to your spots. And once you're in your spot, generally speaking, the five guys are going to create some sort of chance or some sort of shot, but the better power plays are better at getting it in cleanly. And, and whether that means you dump in or check or you skate it in, generally speaking, it means skating it in. Um, I think that is an area where Montreal has not always struggled. because You look at that team and who can they give the puck to, and kick it back at the Dry saddle or McDavid and say, okay, go skate it in for us. Like William Nylander or Stan or Kutra, skate it in for us, Pedersen. They've all the top teams. They have guys, for the most part, who could just, you know, Marchand, pass, pass or not, get it in, get it set up, and then see where we're at. And Montreal doesn't have that guy as good as Tatar and Gallagher are, as good as Suzuki is. They're not there yet. So zone entries have been a problem for them. And the other part about it, and I say this with both P.K. and Shea, is that, you know, very often the perceived best threat on the power play was a defenseman. (laughs) And generally speaking, point shots are not the best way to go on the power play. You don't want to shoot from the, furthest spot away. You want to get the puck in the slot. You want to get it going across the crease, making the goalie move. And that doesn't always coincide with getting the big one-timer for Shea Weber. So um, some, so that also, I think has been, something that has held them back the, the the desire to get that big shoot of the puck sometimes is counterintuitive Counterintuitive with being a really effective power play so um, you put those things together and the power play is not where they not as good as they want it to be I mean it's still you know close to the middle of the pack mm-hmm. uh, but they'd like that to be better.
0: And, and I mean that that's when you, when you look at you know one power play goal a game as opposed to you know one every two games that, that could be a difference when you know the the, sco- the the scoring is not as high as it as it used to be. Also, right? You know, well, you, you Montreal got a great
1: five on five team, yeah, right? So exactly, they're in yeah. they're in a lot of games. Um, they they have a goalie that you are going to trust to be as good or better than the other goalie most nights. Uh, otherwise, you're in big trouble if Carey Price isn't doing that. And so, you know, the, the special teams, which has um, not been as good as they want, um, that that is a difference. That's that's one of the reasons why. Montreal's in the bubble. If they had a great power play, those extra, you're right, whether it's you know 15 more goals, 20, whatever it might be over the course of a year, 20 more goals, that's enough to get you a lot more points when you play as many close games. I don't know what Montreal's record is off the top of my head, but their record in one-goal games or one-goal games with empty netters yeah. is not good this <laughs> past year. So you, know, you throw one more goal into a handful of those games and you're picking up 10 more points, 15 more, whatever it is, yeah. and that's more than enough to get them into the playoffs comfortably.
0: Well, especially coming off a year where they missed the playoffs by you know two points, um, yeah. Last year, uh, I, I, w- I want to talk about uh, Carey Price a little bit. And you know, the NHLPA PA uh, player poll came out; he was number one um, rated goalie. But you look at you know his, his numbers. His, his numbers aren't there. Uh, you know, as where you would think a number one goalie, you know best goalie in the league would be. Is, is mm-hmm. it a matter of of the Canadians? defensive personnel is, is it the system what is it that um kind of has that disparity and i don't think people are expecting carry price to be you know prime carry price but um th- there's a bit of discrepancy when people think he's the best goalie in in the world and uh he's you know the team is 19th in goals against per game uh so well
1: <laughs> a little bit of a loaded question, you know I understand there. No, but like, well, I'll deal with the player side of it first because yeah. I've been in the room and I've gotten the sheet that says, "Give me your first All Star team, give me your <laughs> um, Ted Lindsay Award winner," uh, and I've seen how much attention the guys pay in filling out those ballots. <laughs> so when you ask a player poll, who's the best defensive forward? Like, uh, who won the Selkie? <laughs> oh, it must be Bergeron. Who's the best goalie? Oh, Carey Price. <laughs> he's been the best goalie, right? He won the Olympics. Yeah, he's, wow, he's the best goalie. I don't think guys pay that much attention. It's a legacy. So away. I think. It's a reputational yeah. thing. And maybe it's a at their very best who can yeah. be the best. And maybe that still is Carry at his very best. He could be the best, but he's not been the best goal in the league, not even close to the best goal in the league mm-hmm. for the last couple of years. Yeah. Uh, and I think Carry would be the first to admit that himself. So uh, I don't think you can put too much stock. I, got, I had this conversation <laughs> with some friends and saying, well, I don't get it. Obviously the players know. The players know better than anyone. They say it's Carry. It's got to be Carry." I'm like, you got to be careful with how much you put into what players, uh, the the investment that players put in these polls and how much attention they pay. Cause they just kind of, they fill out the form and get it out of their hands as quickly as possible. So it's reputationally based. I think that alone, but that's only part of the question. That part is, you know, where, where carries numbers? Um, not why have they not been there? And I think part of it is his game has fallen off straight up. Like yeah. he just hasn't played as well. Uh, there are goals that he lets in that, um that that he previously wouldn't. I think that's twofold. One, maybe, you know, whether it's technically he's a bit off or maybe a little bit injured. We know he was dealing with some stuff the last couple of years. He's not he's a big, strong, tough competitor. He doesn't always let you know when he's hurt, but there's been moments where he hasn't quite been healthy. Um, and I think there also are moments when I watch him play, and these are all non technical things, but that he feels the responsibility to win games mm-hmm. and I think when it doesn't go well he almost presses you almost feel that he, he knows the margins are small we, we reference the one goal games he knows that it's on him and in, in many ways because he should be he's the goalie. he's the highest paid guy all those other reasons mm-hmm. to be the difference maker and I, I see at times where he, he, he almost is he's almost doing too much almost if he can possibly try too hard <laughs> but almost feeling that burden of, of being the difference maker. Uh, so there, there is that, that, uh, you know, you got to consider all those different things uh, when, when dealing with Carey Price and why his game is, is maybe fallen off a little bit. And the other bit is, um, you know, Montreal still does give up chances against, I mean, I think they are, um, you know, still good defensively, but they are, they, they do give up pretty good chances. Um, when they do make the odd mistake, um, it, it can de- generally be a, a, a a good one, like not all scoring chances are created equally. Yeah. Not all chances against get are equal. I think Kerry faces um, difficult chances uh, at, at a high enough rate that you know he's going to get scored on. So you fact you, you put all that together, and you know he's he he's been moments where he's been good and moments where he's been kind of an average league goalie. And um, when he's average, the way the Montreal Canadians are constructed, the amount of money that is committed to him, <laughs> that's gonna be that's gonna that's gonna
0: be tough. And uh I do want to go into your your time with Bunch. Obviously you only you played one season with the Canadians. In that season it was kind of a interesting season. You mentioned before that you know you you played you tried to play pay attention to your play without the puck. What's that like when your coach is Guy Garbino and your GM is Bob Ganey? I mean does, does that really, <laughs> as a defensive forward does that kind of uh does it help or um is it, it put more pressure on you? How, how was I how was that like? What was that like? <laughs>
1: I better pay attention to the penalty kill meetings, I guess, (laughs) because we got some guys, you know, what they're doing talking about it. Um, Yeah, I mean, for for starters, I love Montreal. I love playing there. I love living there. I love being around that city and the the residents and the fans, all of it. I I loved every minute of it. I wish I could have stayed longer. And I wish we would have made the playoffs. We lost the last game to Toronto on the last day of the regular season. All we needed was a tie to make the playoffs. And I honestly believe, like, had we made the playoffs, I might've resigned there. I think they might've resigned me. So, I mean, I think it, it was a very <laughs> important game that we, the one game in my entire career out of the 700 I played in the NHL that haunts me the most is the last game where we lost to the least. But, um, so I loved Montreal. Uh, and, and it was neat. I mean, it was neat to have Bob Gainey. He was a very quiet man. He, you know, he didn't talk to him very much. He was, he very much kept to himself. So I didn't have that many exchanges with him, but, uh, right from the first day of the season, um, I think we had Mike Ryder was the first line winger and they had traded for me and signed Sergei Samsonov and uh, Sammy was going to be the second line right winger. I was going to be the third line right winger. I think that that was the way it was slotted and it played out that way. Almost the entire year I played in the third line with Radic Bonk every single day. And um, we were the checking line. And the one good part about having Carbo for our coach, uh, other than the pressure to do it well, was that he also, if I was going to be on a checking role, that was a good team to be on because he clearly <laughs> valued checking players and yeah. a checking line. So like I remember we go up against uh, Ottawa and I don't know if that Danny Heatley and Spetzer were, were together at that point. And I'm like, this is going to be a great game because I'm going to get to play 19 minutes because <laughs> they play so much yeah. every time they go on the ice, I get to go on the ice. <laughs> and so I enjoyed that because you knew you were going to get to play. He would match us pretty hard against the other team's top line every single night. And and when you had good games and that didn't mean just scoring, he would he would appreciate that. He might get you the next day in practice or a meeting and, and say, you know, like, nice job last night. And you knew because it was coming from him and because of what he did for much of his career, you know, he appreciated, I guess, the importance or the challenge in doing some of those things. So, um, yeah, if you're going to be a defensive player, a little bit of pressure but also a whole bunch of opportunity yeah. because both Bob and Guy, um, you know, were defensive players and – and And thought that they were important and
0: and I guess you know looking it, it, you know that that makes the, the the absence of playoffs I guess hurt even more, right because you, you look at playoff hockey, I mean you know if you're yeah. trusted in a checking role, you're going to get a lot of ice time and, and a lot of responsibility there yep. as well, right
1: yeah, there would have been a lot of opportunity there, and I think the year as a whole would have been perceived as as yeah. a positive year as opposed to a bitterly bitterly disappointing right. year. And, you know, even if we didn't advance out of the first round, because we would have been obviously eighth or seventh or whatever mm-hmm. it would have been, it would have been a tough first round matchup, but we would have, you know, would have given yourself a chance to play in the playoffs. And, and it's amazing what one good round of the playoffs for a team or an individual can do for the, for the perception of that team or individual mm-hmm. around the league, let alone two or three. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, that was a disappointing end to a, a great year. I, I loved everything about playing for Montreal.
0: And, and you know, the next day Toronto was eliminated by the Islanders. I know. Uh, in a shootout, that was the
1: only saving grace, though. <laughs> did you, did you went watch went the shootout? To <laughs> I did. It didn't matter to me because I was I was done anyways. But I, I went back to Toronto and I kept thinking, you know, given that I live there, it's, it, and I'd lost that game previously, it's a little bit painful to sit there with all the the flyers and the cars and the honking and the parties. I'm <laughs> like, I don't really feel like I want to go through this right now with Toronto making the playoffs and me having just missed at their expense. So. Um, I did see that one. They, yeah, they, they lost or a shootout caused them to miss as well. And um, I guess I was okay with that at that moment.
0: <laughs> and you know, hearing you know, some, you know, you talk about you know your time in Montreal. Um, obviously, more recently, you know, Ilya Kovalchuk talking about his time in Montreal as well. You know, there's a stigma around Montreal that that you know, it's players don't want to come here, they don't want to play here. But when when mm. players do play here, uh, for the most part, obviously there there are both sides to that um they they talk great about it is it is it that much of a personal preference or is there more to the um you know negative side that that then than actually appears?
1: um well I, 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 how you do <laughs> personally dictates all about how you feel. Now, if yeah. Colby would have come to Montreal and played six minutes a game and scored no points, yeah. he probably wouldn't be raving about how much fun it was there, right? <laughs> like, I think, you know, you could put yeah. me on Mars. If I'm playing well and scoring a lot, I'm like, yeah, it's a great place to play. <laughs> yeah, travel's tough, but I don't care, right? <laughs> so there's, there is some of that. Um, you know, I think, you know, whatever. The weather can be cold. I got traded to, to Montreal after six years in Phoenix. <laughs> so I was ready for cold weather. I was ready to play in a full building where people care, and if you play badly... They might yell at you. I don't. I didn't care because you know that that was going to be a little bit different than where I was coming from. So, I think the negative side of it is, um, yeah, the weather is going to be chilly. Okay, that's fair enough. If you don't like cold weather, there's not much you can do about it other than don't go outside too often. Um, the taxes are high. There's not much. Well, there are things you can do about that, but um, you can try to manage your taxes to mitigate that as best as possible. Uh, as far as the attention, though, which is what everyone, the fans, care about, is that. And this is true for, for all, like, every player is unique. And some players, whether it's Toronto or Montreal or the Rangers or Philly or, you know, any of the big market teams, some guys, just, some guys are private. Or yeah. some guys are maybe more sensitive or more prone to fluctuations in how they feel about themselves. And, you know, they, may, they might get too high. Like, if you play well for two weeks in Toronto, like, people talk about you as though you are the best player in the world. <laughs> But the same thing happens when you play poorly, yeah. and I think that roller coaster is not for everyone. Yeah. And I think that's what people are talking about when they say Montreal might is hard to play for because it, the bad when you don't play well or the team doesn't play well, yeah, you're going to hear about it. Yeah, you're going to have to well, you don't have to read about it, but yeah. it will be there to be read if you want it. And that's different than when you play for the Florida Panthers, yeah. but. Some people like that environment, but don't have it affect them too much. And I guess I'd like to think I was one of those guys. I love playing in Toronto. I love playing in Montreal. But other people, they may like the environment, but both sides of that coin can be unhealthy for a player. The highs can be unhealthy and disproportionate, as can be the lows. And if you get on that roller coaster, it can be hard to do for multiple years in a row. And I think that's what people are talking about yeah. when they say it's, uh, you know, the taxes and the weather or one thing, but <laughs> it's more just, just the, if you're not wired for that attention, then, then yeah, it will be, it could be challenging. Uh,
0: another player who thrived on that, you know, Arizona to Montreal, trip is max domi right and that's the first thing he said is um how excited he was to to go somewhere where they can obviously he he also you know grew up around the maple leafs and (laughs) um... i skated
1: with max when he was like (laughs) five years old like literally i there's probably a picture of me holding his hand he's like three (laughs) skating around like the the family skates i didn't have a family so ty's like hey take my kid and go for a whirl (laughs) um so and and i'm not surprised that he embraced montreal and and that was a big part of his success i think last year and even this year where he had, you know, a good year, not as good as last. But, you know, he doesn't shy away from the, the, the moment, the spotlight, yeah. the history, the pride, really, that he carries in wearing that jersey. And, you know, growing up around Toronto in the Leafs and with his dad going through all the, you know, the trials and tribulations and adulation he did, I'm not surprised that he was the kind of guy that would appreciate and thrive in that environment.
0: I do want to go back to um, a player you played with in Montreal, and that's Saka Koivu. And, and I feel like the perception on him has changed a lot um, in the years, even after he left the team, but especially after he retired. Um, what, what was it like playing with him? And and obviously, you know, he only got one year with him, but he was already captain for a long time at that point. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and it was kind of in, in the... The, the middle years when the team was kind of having a little bit more success, but but still not, you know, Montreal success. Um, w- what was it like to, to play with them uh, in the room?
1: Well, I came in blind. I mean, I, I remember yeah. I got traded to Montreal the first time, and I looked at the roster, and I said, I cannot believe it. There is not one person on that team that I've ever played with before. I mean, I was 11 years in my career, yeah. and I played for three teams previously in World Championships and whatever. Like, I didn't know one person and uh, certainly didn't know Sack, but um, he, he was a very good player. I think we know that, you know, was he a super duper star? No, but he was a really good player, um, played with a ton of heart and soul. And I think, you know, represented a lot of what Montreal and the Montreal Canadiens would be proud to have associated with their team, as far as just the, the caliber of human that he was and charitable stuff off the ice, but also kind of the grit and the tenacity and the skill that he played with on the ice. But to me, what made Sack so great and what I, I still, you know, even though it was just one year, one of my favorite teammates was that uh, he was a great leader. And I don't say that lightly. I don't, I don't throw that away with every captain I ever played for, but um, you know, he, when he first got there, he went out of his way to check in. Are you okay? Do you need anything? Here's, you know, your family. Okay. Oh, you have kids. Okay. Here's, you know, who you need numbers. You need daycares. You need babysitters. Uh, you, know, your, you know, is your wife going to be okay? Like all that kind of stuff. He went, and right away, so I took care of that. And then when we played, in all the years I played, and I tell the story, you know, everyone thinks of the Marc Messier moment where the captain gets up and has a, you know, passionate speech and rallies the troop and breaks a Gatorade bottle. So that doesn't happen in the NHL. Like it just does, <laughs> it's a, that is a fallacy. It does not happen. 12 years, not one time really did that happen except with Saku Koibu. Who again, you know, I'd only been there a few months. It was probably December and we had a bad night. He it was after two periods or something and he, and he got up there and the genuine passion and care that he spoke with or screamed with at the moment, challenging himself and everyone else to be better. That we had to be better for each other and for the organization and how, you know, tying Montreal and all of it in together, I, I still, I get chills remembering like even now thinking about it because it was just so uh, passionate and real and raw and resonated, which, didn't, was not always the case with me when you know you have these locker room kind of private <laughs> players only meetings or whatever. Who are, they're mostly just for lip service. That was not, and uh, and I think that's why he's so well thought of in Montreal. Like, yeah, he, they, they didn't win seven Stanley Cups with him as a captain. Well, that's not the, re- the era that he played in. I mean, you could put all due respect. You know, um, Jean Beliveau playing in the two thousands. He wasn't winning seven Stanley Cups either. Like that's just not how the world. That's not how the world worked at that point. So. Um, I think since he's gone, I think people appreciate you know how much he, how much playing for Montreal and being the captain of the Canadians meant to him, and, and for that I got a ton of respect for him.
0: I think that 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 story about him giving a rah rah speech would surprise a lot of people,
1: <laughs> just because
0: yeah. he was so quiet, you know, off the ice and, and to the media. I, I feel like. If there's anybody that that would not have that story, it would be him. So um, that was that was that was really interesting. I'm I'm I'm, in, I'm happy that I I heard that because, um, you know, I I that was when I was you know growing up, and I feel like he's someone who also would have benefited from all these analytics, you know, because his game was not all about points, and he was put into um, a lot of not great situations, um, you know, being a number one center when you know there were really no other options uh, in channel as well.
1: Um, uh, yeah, but I mean, listen, he, he was an undersized guy, whatever yeah. he was, 5'10", 180 pounds, like you don't survive and thrive, uh, in the NHL or internationally without a fire. So yeah, he yeah. was quiet in the media and kind of reserved as, as maybe most Finnish guys might be. Uh, but he had a fire within him and you, that you'd have to have to be as good as he was, um, for as long as he was.
0: Especially back then, right? Because it's, it's a different game than, than it was. Yeah. It is now. yeah, that's right. um, Going back to to this edition of the Canadians, and kind of circling back to you know, a lot of things that we talked about, when you look at this Canadian team, we talked about you know Philip Danault and Tatar and, and Gallagher. Who, who do you see on this Canadians team as as being underrated or, or most underrated, um, maybe not appreciated for what they they bring um, on a game to game basis?
1: Well, I mean the obvious one to me would be Philip Danault. I mean I think he is he's, <laughs> like he's, yeah, I think he's just I still I think he's just exceptional. I mean I think maybe people in Montreal maybe have a a sense of, of how good he can be. But interesting. I was working with, um, Patrick Sharp and, and it didn't down at NBC one night and we were talking about whatever. And he mentioned how even in Chicago, the tail end, that they traded away sold the And I guess he said the guys, and this is probably a telltale sign that taze and Sharpie went up to whoever the GM was Bowman at the time. He's like, no man, we, what are you doing? Like, He's good. You can't trade him. He's good. Uh, but they brought back I think Kruger in, in, in lieu of him or something. There was something else going on, but yeah. like the players even then in Chicago knew and recognized how good this guy could be. So um, I, I think he would he might be a guy that is that is that is I guess maybe a little bit underrated on uh, on Montreal. The other guy I think it could be really good is Jeff Petrie. I think Jeff Petrie and sometimes Shea Weber gets hurt and so he plays a ton of minutes <laughs> yeah. and. Um, maybe he gets perceived as, as, you know, gets a little bit more attention, but he, he's such a good, such a good second pair defenseman. Like, I don't know if, you know, is he true number one? He probably, He's probably not, but when he has Weber healthy playing ahead of him, I just think he is just an elite level, and he does so many things well. He skates and the passing, the long stick to play defense, and I think he's a guy that is uh, a very, very good player. Uh, when, when especially when Shea Weber's in the lineup, so he might be another guy on the defensive end. And one dark horse. Now we talk about the ability to score goals, and I know it can be frustrating. And the <laughs> analogy I always draw is he can run the ball all the way down the field, and he gets tackled <laughs> the one yard line, and he can't punch it over for a touchdown. And I, and I'm talking about Arturi Leckinen. Yeah. And I, I, like, he does so many things well. Always in the right spot, and makes good little plays, and strong on the puck, and good defensively, and creates and then it gets to the point where he's got to make that last play whether it's a good shot to score or a nice pass to get like a backdoor opportunity <laughs> in a two-on-one and he can't quite pull it off but man he does a lot of good <laughs> things prior to that um, that would that he's, he's a better player than his production yeah. and his fine finishing allows him to show as so I think he might be a little bit underrated um, just because he does so many good things be, before they get to score the goal.
0: Yeah, I, I think, I think Lekkinen is, is the guy that I, I feel like is probably the answer to that, uh, question in my mind. Just, just in terms of people who look at points only and look at all the chances he misses, but it says something to get those chances in, in the first place, right? And, and being in the mm-hmm. right place and, and having those chances. That, that, the no story, um, it reminds, I, I, heard you on the athletic podcast, um, where you mentioned the first time you played with Thomas Placanitz when you cut. Um, yeah. Traded to Montreal, and, and that it kind of, I guess, similar kind of um, first impressions. I, I would guess um, in terms of just players know when someone is 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 good um, right away, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I you do you got a sense. You can. It doesn't always translate, but you got like that guy's got a little something. You got a little little extra something there, and yeah, Plecky was definitely that when I stepped on the ice for the first summer skate. For I was only there for about a week, so three or four skates, but. At that point, I was supposed to play with him because Mike Rivera was a second line center. <laughs> yeah. Flecky was a third line center. So I'm like, I've never heard of this guy. I didn't know how to say his name. He barely spoke English. He would just give me the nod and put his turtleneck on and go play. And even the summer kid, I'm like, ooh. Uh, I-, I call my dad. I'm like, hey, this is going to work out just fine. This kid, you never heard of him? He's pretty good. He's going to be just fine. He reminded me a lot of the centerman I play with in Phoenix, who was a really good player, Damon Lanco. Mm-hmm. Really, you know, undersized, good defensive underrated offensive player, I'm like, this would work out just well, just just fine, but then he got traded, or Ribeiro got traded, yeah. so Plecky played second-line center, so he, he avoided me that year, but um, I, I remember that summer skate really well, and the other guy that stood out that summer skate, and I, I didn't really know him, was a guy named Jason Palminville, longtime Buffalo Sabre, mm-hmm. um, You know, had a really good career, and I'd never even heard of this guy at the time either, and he was just scoring goal after goal, like, who is this guy? Where did he come from? And I'm like, well, I don't know if he's a good player, but man, can he score goals? And sure enough, he went on to have a pretty nice career. So, players, when you're right up there against them, yeah, they 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 tend to tend to be able to know pretty quickly.
0: Perfect. Th- thank you so much for for taking the time. Uh, I really appreciate it. And um, stay safe. And, and hopefully, uh, we get to hear you soon. Uh, obviously, it's not a priority right now, but um, you know, all the best to to you and yours.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. Everyone stay safe, stay healthy. And at some point, hockey will be back. And at some point, I'll be back in Montreal. And we'll all be feeling very happy to to be watching this team play again.